The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wanky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Bear Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on The Tom Sumner Program. About four days ago, a plane landed at Idlewild Airport... The plane came from the Middle East, bearing a man who claims to be 2,000 years old. He spent the last six days at the Mayo Clinic. <laughs> Sir, is it true that you are 2,000 years old? Oh, boy. <laughs> yes. You are too... It's hard to believe, sir, because in the history of man, nobody's ever lived more than 167 years as the man from Peru would claim to be. But you claim to be 2,000. Yes, I'll be... I'm not yet. I'll be... I'll be uh, 2,000 October 16th. <laughs> You'll be 2,000... When were you born? We didn't have a formal... Years and names and, and writing. We didn't know. I see. And what? nobody kept time. See, we didn't know. We didn't write. We just sat around. And we pointed in the sky and we said, "Whoa, hot boy!" You know. That's all you said. We didn't even know it was the sun. We thought. Uh, you mean you really didn't know we didn't anything? Know anything. We were so dumb and stupid. Sir. We didn't know who was a lady. <laughs> But they were. They was with us. We but didn't know who they were. <laughs> we didn't 
know who was the you, ladies and who was fellas. You thought know? it was they were just different type of yes, fellas. Yes, stronger or smaller or yeah, softer. The softer ones, I think, were ladies all the time. <laughs> well, what, what? How did you find out? They were ladies. A cute fat guy could he could have mistaken the fellas. You know? Soft and cute. Who was the person who discovered the female? Bernie. <laughs> Who was Bernie? Bernie, one of the first leaders of, the, of our group. And he discovered the female. Yes. How did it happen? He How said, did it hey, there's, there's ladies here. <laughs> I'm very interested to find out how Bernie discovered the woman. Well, he... How did he, it come to pass? He, one morning, he got up smiling. <laughs> so, he said, I think there's ladies here. <laughs> so, I said, what do you mean, you know? So, he said... Because in the night, I was thrilled and delighted, see? <laughs> so then he went into such a story that uh, it's hundreds of years later, I still blush. Sir, uh, could you give us the secret of your longevity? Well, the major thing, the major thing is that I never, ever touch fried food. <laughs> I don't eat it, I wouldn't look at it, and I don't touch it. And and they uh, never run for a bus, there'll always be another. Even if, even if you're late from work, you know, I never run for a bus, I never ran, I just strolled jaunty, jolly, walking to the bus stop, you know? Yeah, well, there were no buses in the time no, of uh, in my No, in my time, I mean, I... Uh, what was the means of transportation then? Mostly fear. Fear transported you? Fear, yes. You would see an animal would, would growl, you would go two miles in a minute. But I suppose you Fear had... would be the main propulsion. Yes, but I think most people are interested in living a long and fruitful life as yes. you have. You mentioned... Fruit is good, too. You mentioned fruit. <laughs> fruit kept me going for 140 years once when I was, I was on a very strict diet, mainly nectarines. I love that fruit. It's a half a peach, half a plum, such a hell of a fruit. I love <laughs> not too cold, not too hot, you know, so, just nice. What has been Even your... our rotten one is good. <laughs> That's how much I love them. I'd rather eat a rotten nectarine than a fine plum. What do you think of that? I can understand that. Yes, that's how much I love them. Yes, I can understand that. Yes, sir? Some good things. Sir, what uh, did you do for a living? Well, many years ago, thousands of years ago, there was no heavy industry. We know that. The most uh, things that we manufactured or we made, the most things that we ever made was uh, we would make, uh, take a piece of wood, see, and rub it and, and rub it and clean it and look at it and hit earth with it and hit a tree with it. For what purpose? Just to keep busy. There was nothing. <laughs> there was absolutely nothing to do. We had no jobs, don't you? What see? other jobs were there? There must have been something else beside hitting a tree with a no, piece of that, stick. That, well, hitting a tree with a piece of stick was already a good job. <laughs> you couldn't get that job, you know. What job? Mainly was sitting and looking in the sky was a big job, and another job was watching each other was one thing. <laughs> that was lifelike, looking at each other. And what uh, language did you speak at that? They spoke uh, uh, rock, basic rock. Basic rock. Yeah. That was before Hebrew. Yeah, it was 200 years before Hebrew was the rock language or rock talk. Could you give us an example yes. of that? Uh, hey, uh, put that, don't throw that rock at me. Uh, put that rock at me. <laughs> hey, you know, what are you doing with a rock there? Call a policeman, for God's I sake. See. Put that rock away. I see. That was the rock. Now, do you remember, 
Do you remember your Hebrew, sir? Yes, I... I Would you uh, speak I think I remember it fluently. Because I understand the modern Hebrew is different from the... Uh, yes, archaic. it differs in some of the phonetic alliterations and patterns. Yes. yes. Can, can we hear an example of the ancient Hebrew? Uh, the very ancient Hebrew is... Uh, oh, hi there. Hello. <laughs> Hello there, how are you? I'm all right, how are you? That's English. Oh, wait, wait. Uh, Do you remember any Hebrew? Very little, I think. <laughs> I don't think I remember it. I must have forgot a great deal of it. <laughs> I think you forgot it all, Maybe sir. all, yes. Maybe all. Yes. It's thousands of years since I needed it. In, now, Not sir, did you, ever, did you ever have any formal job, as we know it today? Yeah, well, I was a manufacturer. I was an owner. What kind of a factory did you have? I had a... Uh, I used to make the Star of David, the Jewish stars. I was one of the first... Make oh, yes, that. the little thing you wear. said, a... uh, yeah, as soon as religion came in, I was one of the first in that. <laughs> I figured this is a good thing. Yes, and how did you make them? Did you have tools? Well, we didn't have uh, lathes. I employed six men, see, each with a point. <laughs> and they used to run together in the middle of the factory. And in their great speeds, they would fuse the thing. And it would Thus make... making a star. Yes, we would make two a day because of the many accidents. <laughs> We have six men running at high oh. speed, but boy, you know, plenty of action. You never thought of going into anything else? No, I had an offer once. What a was fella it? came to me, Simon. What did Simon ask you to do? He said, if you have a new thing, a new item, a winner, it looks like a winning item that is going to be a big seller, it's called a cross. <laughs> and uh, I looked at it, and I turned it over, and I looked in all sides of it, and I said, uh, it's simple. It's too simple. I didn't know then it was eloquent. Uh, <laughs> you mean you, no, you, I didn't know it would be such turned, a hit. You turned him down. And I said, I'm sorry, but I'm too busy. Uh, see, I could have I could have fired four men. Two men run together, bang, you got a cross. <laughs> see, I could have saved. It, I would, well, I I would have had over $100 today if I went in with the crosses. Because they're in everywhere. Today. By the way, sir, uh, are you married? I have been married several hundred times. <laughs> several hundred yes. times? Yes. You have been married? Do you remember all your wives? One I remember well. <laughs> Which one was that? The third one. Shirley. <laughs> I remember her. I I'm afraid to ask the next question. You had many hundreds of wives. Hundreds and hundreds of wives. How many children do you have? I have over 42,000 children. <laughs> and not one comes to visit me. <laughs> Really? You mean to say there isn't one daughter that Many favors daughters, you? Many daughters, but, but they, you know how they are. Children, good luck to them. Let them go. And I don't want... Listen, let them be happy. As long as they're happy, I don't care. But they could send a note and write, how you pop, how you doing, pop, you know? Something. No, no they don't. Sir, um... You must have known some great men in your time. You did travel throughout I the world. I knew the great and the near great. Could I ask you about some of these? Certainly. I'll tell you the true, the true whether I knew or not. For instance, people are, people are very interested in somebody like Joan of Arc. A lot has been written about her, and we read a lot about her. Ah, what a cutie. You knew Joan of Arc. I went with her, dummy. I went with her. Nowhere in history do we uh, know of Joan going with anybody. Well, they don't print that. They don't print everything. You didn't marry her. No, no, I didn't marry her because she was on a mission, you know. She used to say to me, she used to say to me, 
uh, I gotta say friends. I used to say, I look, I gotta wash up. You say friends. <laughs> see you later. After you say friends, I'll wash up, you know. How did you Paul feel? Paul and Harvey, me and Mark. Yes. You know? How did you feel about her being burnt at the stake? Terrible. <laughs> See, I didn't, I didn't know. Uh, sir, how about some of the legendary characters who supposedly might have existed? For instance, Robin Hood. Did he exist? Oh, yeah. Lovely man. Yeah. Ran around in the forest. Did he really steal from the rich and give to the poor? No, he didn't. He didn't? He stole from everybody and kept everything. <laughs> That's well, how did legend... How did legend... How did legend spring up that he was... Yeah, I fell on Marty. Marty, the press agent, running all the papers and wrote in scrolls. He took from the rich and gave to the poor. Who knew? Who knew? He'd give you such a knock in the head when they robbed you. You wouldn't remember anything. So in other words, uh, we... He was a tough guy. I hate to have our, our legendary figures smashed like Well, this. I hate to smash him for it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Did you, you... You've lived so long. Did you ever have an accident in all this time? An accident or An accident. Oh, an accident. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes, in the, in the year 61, I was hit, uh, I was run over by seven men fleeing a lion. They ran me over. That, that's the extent of all the... But they didn't have insurance, I didn't have insurance. There was no such thing then, uh, so who, you laid there till you got back. amazed at In the 2,000 years you've lived, you've seen yes, a lot of changes. Yes, certainly. What is the biggest change you've seen? In 2,000 years... The greatest thing mankind ever devised that I think, in my humble opinion, is saran wrap. <laughs> you can put a sandwich in it, you can look through it, you can touch it, you can put it over your face and fool around and everything. It's you, so good it you, you can would, wrap it up. You equate this I love with... it. You can put three olives in it and put a little one. You can put ten sandwiches in it and make a picture in it. Whatever you want, it clings and it sticks it. You right. equate this with... You can this, look right through it. You equate this with man's discovery of space... That was good. <laughs> that was good. That, that was a good thing. Well, sir, uh, we don't have too much more time, but we all here would like to know your code. Well, all right. Is this it? You're My on. farewell? Your okay. farewell address. Hello there. <laughs> this is 2,000 years talking to you from the depths of back there when we was. Now I'm still and they not. <laughs> and I just want to say... Keep your smile on your face and stay out of a Ferrari or any small Italian car. <laughs> stay out of them. And I want to tell you that it's been, it's been a wonderful 2,000 years and you've been a wonderful civilization. And it's been a thrill living for 2,000 years. And eat a nectarine. It's the best fruit ever made. <laughs> <laughs> This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Old-fashioned radio For a new generation Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com
Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling authors, photographers, and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org 
or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The Tom Sumner Program.com Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is the executive editor of National Geographic History Magazine, and uh, she's joining me by phone to talk about a, uh, a new tome, if you will, from National Geographic just in time for the 75th anniversary of key events of World War II. That'll be celebrated over the next uh, uh, several months and into the summer. Um, and, and the book is called Atlas of World War II with History's Greatest Conflict Revealed Through Rare Wartime Maps and New Cartography. Yes, it's an atlas, um, kind of like the old atlases I have in the trunk of my car <laughs> that don't show all the new routes. Um, anyway, joining me uh, by phone is Amy Briggs. Amy, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. What is the coolest thing about uh, some of these these old maps? And many of these old maps have never been published before. So that that in and of itself is the, just a rarity. You haven't seen these before. But I have to say, I think my favorite part of the maps are the ones that have the uh, the written annotations on them. You can tell that you know some this was somebody's map that they kept in their pocket and they right. made marks of you know what were the important locations, where were they trying to go, all of those things. It gives it just a very personal touch. So you get the sense that this really belonged to someone who was out there making decisions in battle. One of the things that I found really interesting was the. Um some of the maps that that show like uh where mines are along mm-hmm. the beach it, it, it was um I, I i mean these things bring the war into focus in in real ways i think so i think it gives you it it can it can almost transport the it can almost transport you back to that place and that location, and at least it gives you, at the very least, it gives you an understanding of what what the the people who were fighting, what they saw, what they thought was there, what they believed the landscape was like, what they believed their routes and their plans were going to be. You get a real sense of their intention and, and mindset, so it really does make it come alive in that way. It's not just a piece of paper. This was this was your survival plan, you know. You know, we have this one map of um, of Omaha Beach from D-Day, and yeah. it's the first time that this one has been published, and it's from the um, the beach master of one section of, of the beach there. And it has his, his little notes, and it has, you know, the fold marks. You can tell that this was folded up and tucked away and carefully guarded. It was top secret. Um, and, like, the beach master's job was to direct the locations of the, the men and the equipment and to say, you know, you go here, put that there. And he had to use that map to figure out where everybody needed to go. Uh, so it was not only uh, a map, but it was it was a tool. 
Well, you know what? What's interesting, and I hadn't really thought about this until uh, I, I was looking at a, at a publication from the, uh, National Geographic from uh, earlier, from an earlier uh, interview that I did, um, and it's what's fascinating to me, and I hadn't really thought about it, but these maps can actually tell stories. Yes, very much so. Very much so. You know, you look, and the thing that's wonderful about this book is that we have maps from from both sides. It's not just the United States maps or the British maps. We have Japanese maps, German maps. So you understand what the, you know, what the Axis powers were thinking, what their goals were. It gives you a really well-rounded view of the conflict. Why is it important to preserve this material? How long do you have? (laughs) That's a very big question. Uh, It's important to preserve this material for a lot of of reasons. First and foremost, we want to know what happened. We want to know what happened in order to understand the origins, in order to understand the events, in order to understand their outcomes. You can't measure those things, you can't assess those things without seeing and understanding how people envisioned their world, how they interpreted their world. Maps are, you know, which is one way that they did that. Um, It also serves as a testament to the great sacrifices of the people, not only the leaders, the names we all know, the FDRs, the uh, the Churchills, but also the men and women who were on the ground, the soldiers, the resistance, the spies, this massive, coordinated, cooperative effort of people from all different backgrounds coming together to fight against some of the most inhumane things that have ever, ever occurred in the world. You, you need to have a, a, a record of the great good that they did in in fighting off, you know, the, the powers of, of Germany and Japan. Now, when I say Atlas of World War II, this isn't, you know, cover to cover, map after map after map. There are some amazing photography uh, or photographs and articles as well. But what happens is, and it's it's kind of interesting, because if it was just map after map, it might not be as compelling. But yet, once you start into the book, you will almost ignore the photographs and, and all the wonderful articles to look at these maps. They're, um, they're just so interesting, and from some, so many different uh, points of view and, and parts of the... Uh, of the war and what was going on at the time. I think you raised such a, a great point about the book in that the maps for, for some people are going to be the first thing that catches their attention and they're going to get lost in those maps. But then they can go back to the book and see the photographs or go back to the book and see the artifacts. There's so many different dimensions to have the, the book pull you in and tell you a story about the war. Now, are there um, specific events that stand out in the book that we will be commemorating uh, the 75th anniversary of over the next year? And the the biggest one is is D-Day and Operation Overlord. 
uh, that's the 75th anniversary coming up this June. Um, So that's, I would say, one of the biggest, and the the coverage of that in this book is is phenomenal. We have wonderful new National Geographic maps showing um, what we call the Atlantic Wall, what the what the Allies were going up against along the uh, Atlantic coast of uh, of France and and, and Germany's territory. Um, there's also this fantastic map of Omaha Beach, and it was the top secret map that was carried by one of the beach masters, and it has his handwritten notes on it. You can see like different locations that he's marked in different positions. It was the beachmaster's job to direct where the men and the equipment needed to go. And so he had annotated on this map that we re- that is in the book all of these different positions. But the other wonderful thing, like I just love this, you can see the fold marks in the map. You can see how this was tucked away, you know, in his kit and guarded. And then also you can tell that after the war was over, he annotated on the bottom, you know, in his own handwriting, used this chart during stay on the beach and then signed his name. And we, mm-hmm. Stay on the beach. I mean, that's so, so that's, that's such an understatement of what went on on the beach that day. But you get a real sense that this was a this was his personal survival guide, his personal plan for what was going to happen that day. Now. Uh- National Geographic has been around for 135 years and obviously has a huge library of great photographs and and documents from not just that period, but the the whole last 130-plus years. Uh, How much of this is new stuff or, or stuff that wasn't pulled from the Nat Geo archive? All of the National Geographic maps, there are more than 100 of them, were newly created for this book. So we went back and took whatever existing maps we had and updated them with the latest and greatest in terms of mapping technology, but also the latest and greatest in terms of history and what what is known about all of the different battles and all of the different sites that are mapped in the book. So all of those are new. Um, the other things that we were able to bring in, we collaborated with the International Museum of World War II. The museum's director, Kenneth Rendell, wrote forward for us. But Neil Kagan, the book's editor, was able to go into their collection to get original artifacts and documents and to bring those together into the, into the collection as well. And a lot of these maps uh, would not have been in color if they hadn't been recreated. Um, the, the Nat Geo ones, yes, we, and the, the older ones, certainly, um, but many of the, the archival maps, as you're seeing them printed in the book, is how they looked. So if you see a map and it looks like it's green and blue, and then it, it was. We reproduced the, the archival ones faithfully, but the National Geographic maps, you'll see them, they're different colors, they have different typefaces, um, they are all up-to-date and new. And and how are those maps created, based on narratives, on other maps, all of the above? All of the above. National Geographic still has a robust cartography department. Uh, the cartographer on this book is a guy by the name of Greg Udansky, and he spent hours upon hours upon hours researching all of these maps 
and the placement of every land feature, every movement of every army, you name it. If there's a rabbit hole, he's been down it. Um, he de- he dedicated the last few years to working on this book, and the the effort and the passion really show in the end in the end product. How many how many people? And you mentioned the last few years. Um, how long has this book been in the works, and, and how many people did it take to compile all of this? Um, the book has been in the works for the last two to three years. Um, we're always looking ahead to anniversaries and events to see what the next big you know thing for, for our history and our, our, our historical atlases will be. And so this has been on our, our radar for quite some time. I mean, the, the team itself is... Pretty significant. I mean, Neil Kagan is the editor, and he heads up his own team of researchers and archivists to go and comb all of, you know, not only museum collections, but personal collections, stuff in your grandfather's attic. Like, they go everywhere to try to find the artifacts and the documents that nobody else has. Steve Hislop is, um, he's a longtime author for National Geographic, written a ton of history for us. Um, so he also has his own team of researchers that help him, you know, pull together the text. Cartography, we have, you know, Greg is the primary cartographer on this, but he also worked with several military historians, Harris Andrews in particular, to refine the maps and review the text and keep everything sort of, com- you know, comprehensive across the, across the book and consistent. But then you also have, you know, our, our in-house team of books people, our, our editors, our editorial assistants, our photo researchers, our book designers. You know, there are so many different people um, weighing in on, you know, on this book and contributing. And it's a real team effort to put together a project like this. And is preserving this this information, the stories contained, the images is that for preservation's sake, or are there things to be learned and and taken into consideration for people moving forward? I mean, I think that's one of the great questions of, of just history in general, not just World War II. There sure. are many people who, I think, have that like well, same concern. You know, why should we save these maps? Why should we save these things? And it's because these are the great stories of history. These are the great opportunities to understand the world as the men and women of the 1940s experienced it, how they rose to the occasion and sometimes failed to deliver in in times of great adversity, uh, great uncertainty. Um, World War II is also, it's full of great moments of heroism, but it's full of great inhumanity, you know, the Holocaust, the rape of Nanking, the Bataan Death March, all of these things we can't turn a blind eye to. We need to see humanity in its full capacity for greatness and for horror. And in order to to do that, it helps to look, I think, back with some remove and to be able to see all of those tendencies on full display, I think it helps us in our own time to recognize moments where maybe we need to rise to an occasion. I, I raise that question because I, in this modern era of, of technology and mobile devices, we, we live almost in a today-forward mindset. 
and 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 I wonder if it isn't a little frustrating sometimes trying to remind people that we have a record on which to base decisions and plans and and the way we look at the world. Yes. I also think studying history is reassuring, especially in this time of fast change and, you know, unprecedented, you know, you something happens five minutes ago in Washington, D.C., and it's on, you know, your, your news feed five minutes later. Um, and so you, you, we get this sense of things happening and feeling like this has never happened before, this is unprecedented. But if you know your history, maybe things never happened this quickly before, but leaders doing questionable things, that's happened before. You know, it's, it's, it's nice to be able, it's comforting to be able to look back and see that humanity's been dealing with challenges from the beginning and to be able to look to similar instances and see what people were able to achieve during moments of great hardship, I think can be um, quite grounding. It can help settle people, I think, and make you understand that humanity is not just this one blip, that we've been, we've been here for a long time and we've been, we've been wrestling with the questions and, and contradictions of being human for a long time. I think technology has changed real time in in a way that we see atrocities happening as they happen in a way that we didn't 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you're right about uh about these things being sort of reassuring because you know, I see social media posts all the time that talk about you know, how frightening things are right now, and it's never been this bad before, and, and all of that. And then I look through some of the pages of a book like this, and the book I'm talking about, of course, is this uh, Atlas of World War II um, from, Na- uh, from National Geographic. It, it reminds us that people have always been people, and, and good and bad things happen. And that the, you know, the uncertainty, say, of being in Paris when the Germans marched in, at not knowing, was your country going to be there or not? Were you going to be part of Germany for the rest of your life, or were things going to change? It's uh, these sorts of of scary things, you know, are, are, I think, very, very common to human existence. And so I think that that's one of the reasons why it's so important to study the past and to look at, at books like this that do, a, I think, a very good job of not only telling the top story of the, the military movements and the battles and the commanders, but also the story of the regular, everyday people on the ground, the people who were swept up by the Holocaust, the people who were fighting in the resistance movements. And what, what struck me about the resistance is that there are people from all different backgrounds. It's very diverse. It's not just one particular group fighting together. So they're coming from different points of view and able to unite against this horrible, evil thing. And, like, that's so inspirational. Is there... Um, you mentioned, of course, uh, the the landing at uh, Normandy, D-Day, and, mm-hmm. and that's going to be 
commemorated. The 75th anniversary of that will be commemorated in big ways all over the world probably uh, this June. But um, are there? what are some other defining moments for you as a historian that you take away from, from the World War II uh, archive and, and this book in particular? A couple of things. Um, I think the for me, the section the the section of the book that begins the Pacific War, where Japan was rising to power, and how they were how that nation was moving throughout the Pacific theater and into Asia. It was something that I didn't have as firm a grasp on until I read. I read through this book, and in a lot of a, a lot of what helped clarify things for me were the maps, because they showed the Japanese movements. They showed how organized and coordinated their attacks were, and it wasn't something as an American that I think I really appreciated, because as an American, I only really heard about Pearl Harbor, but and, and, and you know, the, the Philippines and MacArthur and I shall return and all that. But the rest of it, the what were what were the Japanese ambitions? What were they trying to do? That really frame was is framed in an, in a way that I I've not seen before, and the way that the maps really visually show you that story clarified so much for for me as to what was going on in that part of the world. That's that's interesting, yeah. and and I I really related when you talked about uh, an American perception of Japan's participation in the war because, you know, I can I can attest my my version of it is it begins with Pearl Harbor and ends with Hiroshima, and that's about as much as I know about Japanese involvement in the war. And and have no real sense for what their aspirations may have been. Mm-hmm. And the the book does a great job, too, with the, the prelude to the war in the European theater as well. I mean, that story really starts 100 years ago this month with the end of World War One, you know, and that planted the seeds for World War II. So it literally starts, you know, in 1918 and with what was, you know, going on in Germany after the after the peace conference and you know Hitler's rise to power and the rise of dictators you know throughout Europe and you get a very you get the sense of how Germany you know just expands sort of not not little by little but you get the step by step about how how they go where they go and all of a sudden how the rest of the western powers sort of wake up and go hey wait a minute <laughs> Um, but that is that you, you get the, the the rise of the war, and then the most of the book is the actual explosion of the war and what happens. But understanding where the war came from, I mean, the book does such a fantastic job of setting that up, and so you understand that the war just didn't happen; that there were many, many, many events that led up to it. More with Amy Briggs, the executive editor of National Geographic History Magazine about their new book, Atlas of World War II, is straight ahead. Old-fashioned radio 
for a new generation. Tom Sumner Program.com. Tom Sumner Program.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now, and now too, and even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Vi from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. 
and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. All the Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with Amy Briggs, the executive editor of National Geographic History magazine, about their new book, Atlas of World War II, is straight ahead. You know, I always kid people from National Geographic because these books are huge. I mean, you put, they, <laughs> sometimes they call them coffee table books. I think if you put legs on it, it could be a coffee table. But it's. A book like this has to be that big because you need to be able to see these maps big well appreciate and, the level of detail and and the thing is that one of the things that i that i've always admired about national geographic is not just the quality of the photographs now that's going to be a little different in this book because of the historical nature of some of the photographs and the fact that they weren't taken by national geographic photographers necessarily mm-hmm. um but the reproductions are so amazing. And and then the other thing, I'm looking at, at all of the things, and, and I'm thinking about all of the people who had to play a role in this, the people who were writing copy for various articles and ramp-ups and things, you know, captioning for various photographs and illustrations, maps, and so on. But there's continuity from start to finish. It isn't just... This this bound collection of of individual articles. It's it, it really we really is put such emphasis across all of our products on storytelling and on having a competitive a compelling narrative that takes you through an event. And if that storytelling isn't there, then. It, People, people lose interest unless, like, you're a map fanatic or a photo fanatic. And that's a very, like, small, I think, small but passionate group. But I think more people relate to a compelling story, one that catches you up in the sweep of all these events. And seeing the pictures of the people, the pictures of the things they carried, having the, the, the modern maps that we created to really orient you in the story, it's a very immersive experience. Yeah, any, um, anybody who's a fan of maps is going to love this book, but you don't have to be to love this book. You're going to end up loving the maps anyway because the story draws you in and you want to immediately get some visual sense of 
where this was all happening and how it all came together and the maps are right there it's it's really quite uh quite compelling as as i have been reading through it i'm i'm glad to hear that the the book team really worked so very very hard on this for so very very long and it's such a joy to finally see the finished product and also to hear that you know people like yourself are are responding so strongly and so positively to it. Well, one of the questions that I always ask is, who is this book for? Hmm. I think the book, is it's a perfect gift for anybody who, you know, is interested in World War II. I think anybody who's interested in, in history, in military history, like you said, in maps. Um, but someone who's looking for the con- the context of explaining how the 20th century sort of got off to a start and what were the what were the concerns what were the conflicts what were the the nations of the world bumping up against each other about and that's all in this book the other thing is i i think people who are interested in real human stories like i said it's it's not just the the names you hear about, the, the FDR or the MacArthur. It's, it's about the soldiers and the spies and the men and the women, and you, you really get a sense of how much was at stake for how many people. You know, there are testimonies of people who survived the Bataan Death March. Um, we have, you know, accounts of people who were in the French Resistance and what they had to do to, you know, to, to get things behind enemy lines to the to the spies. Um, it just, it, it brings alive a part of, of time that, you know, is is in the, the far past. I mean, we have people now who can't imagine what life before cell phones was like, so this must be a completely foreign country to them. I think it really helps parachute you down in the past and, and understand what was going on. Amy, I can't help but uh i'm I'm gonna go out on a limb here and guess that you were interested in history before you became executive editor of national geographic history magazine um a little bit what what what, i'm a i am a i'm a history nerd i totally am what do you love it but but what what caused you to look to start looking back in that way to have such a, a passion for history I was one of the few who had a really great history teacher in high school. Most people I talk to who don't like history, it sounds like they didn't have great history teachers. They Teachers focused on dates and places, and yeah. you need to know this for the test and check the box. Right. My, my history teacher was a man uh, named Mr. Caruso, and he had a talent for bringing out the humanity of people. He was a, our U.S. History One teacher, and he talked about the Founding Fathers like they were real flesh-and-blood people. He talked about their strengths, but he also talked about their weaknesses. You know, I remember him sitting down and talking about Ben Franklin and sort of opened up with, well, Ben Franklin was actually kind of messing around with some women in Paris, and the whole class sat up, like, what? Because it made Ben Franklin, it took Ben Franklin out of that key in a kite, you know, dotty old man, poor Richard's almanac thing, and made him a flesh-and-blood person. Well, and, and, and the fact me. that he was probably the country's first blogger. <laughs> very much, <laughs> very much so with the almanac. Um, 
let me let me just uh, ask very quickly because we're almost out of time, and I I'm kind of a history fan too, and and I think you've. Uh, uh, confirmed my my long-held opinion that that history is really the telling of stories and not the recitation of dates and places. Um, oh, I agree. I agree. What it's, what is uh, what is next for you? What is next for me? Uh, my sure next probably... issue of History Magazine is what's next for me. We're working on our cover story on Jesse James. Oh, cool. Um, and so, which is a, it's a, so it's about his participation in the Civil War. And how that experience shaped him and turned him into the bank robber that is known today. But his background with the Confederacy isn't as well known. So we got a, a great author to tell that story. Well, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more. And, and this is really just an opportunity to uh, uh, give a shameless plug for uh, National Geographic's web presence. So you can find all of our products at National Geographic nationalgeographic.com at our website. There's a, a store there and you can check out all the books and uh, especially Atlas of World War II and all of our other latest and greatest publications. History Magazine is available there too. Uh, but the books are also available wherever books are sold. So if you want to go to Amazon or you want to go to your local bookseller, um, the book should be there and, uh, and ready for sale and ready for gifting to those people who love history in your life. Well, and you're not just a history geek. You, you're, you've got uh, some Star Wars and Angry Birds in your past. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have many talents, yes. I know way too much about Star Wars. <laughs> well, Amy, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and by all means, may the Force be with you. May the Force be with you, too. Thank you so much for your time. Take care. Bye-bye. That was uh, Amy Briggs. She is the uh, executive editor of National Geographic History magazine. Prior to her three years as executive editor, she has spent more than 15 years in book publishing with a focus on nonfiction. She is the author of several books, including two National Geographic kids' books and National Geographic Angry Birds Space and National Geographic Angry Birds Star Wars. Briggs earned a uh, Bachelor of Arts from Princeton University. She lives in Arlington, Virginia, with her daughter and their four adorable cats. Anyway, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. From the Tom Sumner Well, that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. In fact, there's Smoke and George tickling the ivories. Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to, to the living room, but I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the show. But uh, I hope you enjoyed that uh, look back at World War II with Amy Briggs from National Geographic. And uh, I want to say thanks to my uh, live guests today. We had uh, Emmanuel Rosen talking about his grandparents and in observation of... Um, Holocaust Awareness Day, and of course, what a great way to start the day um, with uh, 
the ambassador of joy, Barry Shore. Good night, everybody. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening. 